You are listening to Hope Fellowship Church of Jaffrey, New Hampshire. If you would like to check out more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit hfcnh.org. All right, if you'd like, you can turn with me to Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. We're going to get there in a moment. And then today, as kind of as we've been doing, we're, we'll be jumping around a little bit in the New Testament. I have quite a few passages this morning that I want to just, just briefly even look at. But we're going to be talking about Jesus today. Is that okay? Is that okay with you guys? I figured at church, occasionally we should do that, you know? I've kind of heard he's a big deal. Okay. Um, now, today, obviously, through this series of Long Story Short, Jesus has been mentioned in every message. I can promise you that. But, it, but until this point, as we went through season one, 10 episodes, we come to this point where we're gonna be talking about Jesus as the Messiah, truly this climax. And so uh, I understand some people are maybe coming in here for the first time and uh, trying to figure out what the series is about. And so we'll get into that a little bit here at the beginning. Uh, we'll do a little bit of a kind of a recap introduction uh, as you would on a new season. You kind of recap all that season one left behind. And so we'll do that slightly as we try to get this big picture before we hone in on Jesus. But we love a good story, right? Every, every time I, I jump into this series, I'm reminded the importance of, of stories. We are a very storied people, if you could say that. Uh, we, we love telling stories. I love telling stories. I mean, we all love hearing and listening to stories. My girls are always wanting me to read them stories. And when we look at this long story short, we are reminded how much uh, and how important really good stories are. And I, I do my best to try to tell stories. There are many times where I come home or, or I'm telling my wife something I'm reading or learning or something that happened, and I'm trying to tell her this story. And I don't know about you, but there are some people who are good at telling stories and some people who are, are not so good at telling stories. And I, I, I can be a little bit of both sometimes. Uh, there are times when I go way too back and I give way too many details that have nothing to do with really anything relevant to the story. But I think it pertains to it and I tend to get into this mode where I, I preach the story to my wife and she'll just be like, okay, would you just, would you get to the point, right, you know? And if we preachers have that problem. We're used to uh, expounding for long periods of time and, and my wife is trying to take care of all these children and she's just like, get to the point, right? You know, you've ever had that? Um, and so that happens, but stories are so important. And, and the other day I was reading a story to my daughter, uh, Taylor, and we were, we were in the middle of the story, kind of midway point. Um, it's a riveting story. In fact, if you want to check it out sometime, the, the snail on the whale, a snail on the whale. I don't know if you read that kid's story, a snail on the whale. Uh, we're getting to the point right about where the whale is beached up on the sand and the snail has to climb off of the whale to save his friend, the whale. And so spoiler alert, if any of you haven't read the story, the snail actually manages to travel quite a far distance and I've never figured out how long that would have taken, but uh, quite a far distance to a school where he spells out on the chalkboard with his slimy trail the words, save the whale. Okay, and then the whole school recognizes at that instant apparently that there's a whale that needs to be saved and that whale is on the beach and so they gather the whole town to rescue this giant whale. Anyways, I get to the point here, right? <laughs> My daughter Charlie comes bursting into the room and uh, she is, uh, has a look on her face that she is just utterly offended that Taylor and I would dare start a book without letting her know, right? You know, how dare we read a book without letting her know? And so she immediately plops down right next to us and starts demanding that we be start at the beginning. Start over, do the book again, you know, go back to the beginning. I don't wanna start right here in the middle. I want you to start back where the snail meets the whale, right? And so, you know, we I even say, we're, get, we're right at the good point though. We're right here in the middle where the, the whale's gonna be saved. That's the most interesting part, but, but okay, we, we did. We went back to the beginning, right? We started at the beginning. And I think sometimes when we approach the Bible, many of us uh, jump right into the New Testament and we start reading there because in fact, even if you were to come to me, if you were new to Christianity, you were new to following Jesus and you were new to the Bible, I would most often recommend don't start in Genesis, start in John or Mark or one of the Gospels that will help you get a grasp of the most central figure of this entire story, which is Jesus Christ. 
And so often I direct people, you know, start reading in the book of John or Luke or one of those. Um, and I think that will help you get a better sense. But, but there's something to be said, right, of truly starting back in the beginning, the beginning of the entire story, so that we can have in our hearts and minds an understanding of the whole overarching meta-narrative long story that allows us to grasp truly all uh, that time has been beating towards this, this drum that's been beating towards the coming of Jesus, that it is this ultimately climactic moment of Jesus coming in the incarnation and being born in Bethlehem. It is this truly extraordinary moment. It wasn't like just out of the blue, that God was like, well, I guess we might as well get around to saving these people, you know, I'll just, Maybe today, does today look good? We'll send Jesus today. It, it wasn't just this off the cuff, off the random time that, that God decided just one day out of the blue to send Jesus. In fact, in Mark 1, we see that Jesus himself recognizes this. In Mark 1, verses 14 through 15, he says this, this is right at the beginning of Mark's gospel. Mark doesn't have much of a Christmas account like Luke and has another of these. He, he goes right into the active ministry of Jesus, probably when he was around 30. And in Mark uh, 1, it says, verse 14, now after John was arrested, so John the Baptist has been imprisoned, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming, or you could say preaching or prophesying this, proclaiming what? The gospel of God, he says, and saying, Verse 15, the time is fulfilled. The time is right. The time is here. And he says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. This is the climatic moment in all of that's been leading up until this point of Jesus preaching the message of the kingdom of God that is here. The kingdom is here. This is ultimately, many would say, the, the fullest um, summary, simplistic, but also full encompassing message of the gospel. What is the gospel? What is the good news? It is the message that Jesus himself most often preached. And no, it wasn't a message of just grace and love and kind words. It was a message of the kingdom of God. That was Jesus' message. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is nigh at hand. It's near. Repent and believe the gospel. This is also found in other passages in Galatians. You don't have to turn there. You can listen. In fact, today we'll be looking at a variety of passages. You're welcome to follow along. I've even told the booth, don't try to follow along in all of these passages because what I want you to do is just today kind of in a sense be bathed in scripture. Do you know what I'm saying? Uh, today we're gonna be looking at all that Jesus represents in the New Testament and, and really throughout the, all of time. And so we're gonna be looking at a bunch of different passages. And so some of those times, I'm just gonna ask you to kind of focus and listen uh, to what the, the scripture is that's being read. But in Galatians, he gives us another reminder that this time was not random. The fact that Jesus came at this time was so important. In Galatians 4, in the same way also, when we were children enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, but when the fullness of time had come. You get that phrase? But when the fullness of time had come, had come. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. This beautiful picture. The fullness of time had finally come for Jesus to be sent. In Ephesians 1, it talks about this as well, that it was according to the purpose which God had set forth in Christ, a plan for the fullness of time. Ephesians 1, verses 7 through 10. The time was ripe, the time was ready, the time was now. The time we spent in season one of our series, really of long story short, walking from Genesis to Malachi, this, this whole Old Testament is this, this really leading up to this point. It's, it's not by mistake. It's 10 episodes throughout season one and thousands of years of history building up to one climactic point reminds us of the broad storyline of the Bible that gives us a framework to fully understand the importance of Jesus and how he is truly the ultimate watershed moment for all of time. 
And so I wanted to kind of just scribe that to you because as I was told by my wife the other day, sometimes pictures are a little more helpful than you just giving more words, okay? So I try to do this. The first kind of picture or diagram that I have for you guys today is off of this very maybe well-known, it's called Freytag's Pyramid. If you're studying literature or you're reading novels or you read fiction or mystery novels, whatever it is, any kind of literature, you can almost be for sure that you can find find this basic pyramid in all of most of literature of what you read. You have often what's known as the exposition, the beginning introductory material that sets the scene. Then there is often an inciting moment that truly changes things. And, and many would say that could be in Genesis 3 with the fall, but I, I like to think of it often like in Abraham. When Abraham is called, things change. There's this zooming out moment in Genesis 1 through 11, and then right there when Abraham is called in Genesis chapter 12, boom, there's this change in the way God has been altering and the way God has been working working things. And so we see the entire Old Testament is ultimately this rising action, this slow stepping up the staircase to finally get to the pinnacle of the mountain, which is when Jesus comes. And really you could say all of Jesus' life. You could, yes, pick one moment, maybe the cross, uh, but even that is tied where the cross is ineffectual without the resurrection. And so it, it really proves that the cross and the resurrection, that three-day period, or Jesus' three years of ministry, or maybe just Jesus' entire earthly life is really this climactic point in the time of history where Jesus comes. And then after Jesus, there is a marked difference and change in the way that God interacts with the world and the way that all that we experience today has been changed forever because of Jesus. And so we could say that's the falling action after that where the church in the New Testament uh, is, is in that falling action. And, and as we from, from Jesus to eventually his return where Jesus will come again. And so when Jesus comes again, we get the final resolution of things. And that final resolution is when God will remake and give and unite heaven and earth in completion and there will be a new heaven and a new earth and we will live in eternal bliss with God there. And so there's this exposition, rising action, climax, falling action, resolution that I think often helps me think through all of that we are. And today, we, we live still in the falling action from the cross. We live in the church, we, at the time of the church and, and of the Holy Spirit that is working and moving in this time period. And we, as a people, just like they did thousand, a thousand years ago, 2,000 years ago, we live after Jesus. We live in this AD world. And in this world of after Jesus, we, we live here in this place waiting for his return waiting for the second coming and the second appearing of Jesus Christ and the second advent. And so it's in this time period that we find ourselves even right now. But from creation to the fallout, to the call of Abraham, to Abraham uh, and the blessing of Abraham that, that there would be come from him and from his seed, a, a seed that would crush the head of the serpent, a, a snake crusher you could say from Genesis 3.15. And that seed would come from Abraham and from Abraham would be a nation that would deliver, would be the vehicle that would bless the entire world. And how would this blessing come about when the people do not find themselves anymore in a land? They do not find themselves as a nation. They are enslaved in Egypt. Well, Moses is sent by God to deliver the people and in a miraculous manner to deliver the people and, and to really be a type of Christ of what God would eventually do to deliver his people from sin. And then Joshua comes and conquers the land to ultimately give the people rest and peace. And yet they do not fully walk in that rest and peace and the kingdom eventually over their sin and over their idolatry and adultery against God, they, the kingdom is divided and there's a northern and a southern kingdom. And from there, uh, we see that David is led uh, and leads the people of before that into the divided kingdom and eventually Solomon, the kingdom's divided and you get the prophets that come the prophets speak the message and the word of God into those different kings throughout the history and trying to speak the word of truth into them, be God's vehicle for God's message and to proclaim and prophesy the final coming one who would one day make this all right, would be the final prophet, would be the final priest, would be the final king who would come. And then we reach this intermission point where there's this 400 years where the people have been waiting to hear uh, this word from God of, of when this Messiah would come. They ask the questions of will these dry bones actually live like you said in Ezekiel 37? 
Will a, a, a root really spring out from the trunk of the nation of Israel? The tree has been hewn down and is no longer the mighty empire of Solomon. There's no longer this shalom and peace. We are a conquered people, they say in the Old Testament. How will a, 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 a root spring up from the ground, this root of Jesse? Will this tree really spring out from there and bear fruit that will bless the nations? How is this going to happen, they're asking. When will this happen, they must be wondering, until finally God answers this through the word of John the Baptist when he comes speaking, make way, make straight for the path of the Lord, for the kingdom of the Lord is at hand. Repent, turn for the one that, that, is, that has been prophesied of old, the anointed one is coming. John the Baptist paves the way until Jesus here finally comes in and says the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. We find ourselves at this point. So we arrive at this climax to Jesus. And so in Philippians 2.10, it says that actually at this name of Jesus, that every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Every knee, even in heaven, on earth it says, it, and under the earth, everyone will bow to this name, the name of Jesus. But, but what's in a name? So as we look at this person of Jesus as the Messiah, what, what is in a name? Who is Jesus? And who is this second name that he has, this Christ? What do those represent? And what's the big deal about this guy, Jesus? And so when we look at Jesus, remember from the Old Testament in our study of Joshua, do you remember? Jesus and Joshua have this connection because they share a same name. Jesus, ultimately the name means the Lord is salvation. And so in the Greek and in the Hebrew, we find Jesus and Joshua's name being the same. The Lord is salvation. So that is the point, that Jesus is the one that we look to to find salvation. Look to the Lord, for he is the only way. And we've seen that worked out through the Old Testament. But the word Christ is a word that comes from the Greek translation of the word Messiah. Messiah is a Hebrew word for anointed one, one that has been anointed. And so when we say Jesus Christ, we're saying Jesus, that the Lord is salvation and that he is God's anointed one. You could say chosen one. Uh, you could say the one who has been anointed by God in a special designation and way. And so this word I want us to kind of look at a little bit before we really dive into some of these scriptures. But, but, but Messiah, what is that? The Messiah. You know, we can think of people today who have a Messiah complex. They always have to be the hero and the savior of everything, right? And we see that as a negative thing. But in regards to Jesus, he is truly the Messiah. He is the anointed one. Anoint is this term that maybe brings pictures and images to mind. Uh, often in the New Testament, we think about it in, the, in relation to the Holy Spirit as it was often connected. But in the Old Testament, it often reflected this picture of anointing someone with oil. And so in the Old Testament, uh, God often designated specific offices and tasks and purposes for people, and he publicly made that, that, uh, that purpose for the person public by anointing them with oil. And in fact, John T. Rhodes, a pastor, writes this uh, very helpful summary. He says, when we read the Old Testament, we discover three major groups Three groups of people who are anointed with oil to symbolize their commissioning to an office. The prophets, the priests, and the kings. And David was, if you would say, messiahed or anointed as king in 1 Samuel 16. Aaron was messiahed or anointed as priest in Leviticus 8. Elijah was messiah or messiahed or anointed. He was supposed to a messiah Elisha as prophet in 1 Kings 19. And we might even say that each prophet and priest and king in the Old Testament in their own limited way was a Messiah, a mini Christ, a type of the one who was to come. And some of the major figures that we've looked at throughout the scriptures in the Old Testament in season one, we've seen how they in very overt, clear ways uh, typify the coming one who would the, the, the actual Messiah. And so these three groups that we think about this, Old Testament prophets, priest, and king, and theologians for centuries have been trying to help us understand what it is that Jesus actually does for us on the cross and what his coming actually means. 
Because if we're really honest, if we just truly kind of put ourselves and maybe even, even if you've grown up in church and you try to remove yourself from all the designations and the meanings that the word Jesus means to you, if you really just think about it on, on a base level, what is it that, that Jesus actually does? L- like who is Jesus? And we think about, well, Jesus is, is important. Jesus is the climax. He's the central. But what is it that, that the work of Jesus is coming? What does his life, death, and resurrection actually accomplish for you and me? If you think theologically, what is the actual importance of Jesus? What's the big deal? And I think that's a good question for us to ask. For we, we come into church all the time and we, we sing praises to Jesus and we talk about Jesus and yet we might not always think about why he is so important. And today I hope we can kind of grasp that a little bit at a greater detail. What did actually through his life, death, and resurrection. What is that actually accomplishing for you and for me? And so as we look at that, I think it's helpful to begin with this concept of Messiah, the anointed one, that he is the final anointed one. In fact, at his baptism, the Trinity are present there, and and they give a designation upon Jesus, almost this anointing upon him that is saying, this Jesus, he is my beloved son, of whom I am well pleased. I am giving this sense of honor and designation and blessing upon this, for he is anointed as the anointed one, Jesus the Messiah. Then Jesus, in a very overt way, in Luke chapter four, gets up in the temple. He takes the scroll of Isaiah. He opens it up in a clear and overt manner. He says, he reads from Isaiah, I I can't remember the exact passage, it it might be chapter seven, but it says that the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of the Lord has come upon me, he reads, and has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. This is the message that Jesus reads in order to designate himself as the Messiah, in order to proclaim to all those who are very clear that that passage was pointing to one who was designated by God to preach the good news. And so this is, uh, this is Messiah, this person, this Jesus, is one who fully kind of unites this concept in the Old Testament of prophet, priest, and king. He unites and intertwines all three of them into one. And I think that's helpful for us to think about. In fact, the Heidelberg Catechism, which is an old catechism that teaches theology, uh, question number 31 says, why is he called Christ, meaning anointed? The answer to this catechism, I'm sure you all have it memorized, says because he has been ordained by God the Father and he has been anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher who fully reveals to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our deliverance. He is also our high priest who has delivered us by the one sacrifice of his body and who continually pleads our cause with the Father. And he is, get this, our eternal king who governs us by his word and spirit and who guards us and keeps us in the freedom he has won for us. Aren't you thankful you can look that up online and not have to memorize that? But that catechism, right? Three things, it describes very clearly that we are Jesus in his Christ and in his anointed status is our chief prophet, our high priest, and our eternal king. And so as we look at all of season one that leads up to this point, our, our minds are filled with images and stories of all of these kings, Good kings, bad kings, uh, Josh, Pastor Josh did a fantastic job of describing uh, the deplorable nature of the northern and southern kingdoms, but all of those kings that truly did not measure up to, to this perfect king status, the, the history of all the priests and all of the thousands and thousands of animals sacrificed in the temple upon altars here and altars there, all the prophets that we see, the major and minor prophets that are preaching messages of repentance and turning to God and speaking that would you do the will of God, would you turn back to him, the preaching of God's word, And it's in this that we find all of them are pointed to this final great Messiah who will take on that king, that priest, and that prophet and will tie them into perfection and be our son of man who will represent us to God. Jesus is ultimately this man, this one, who will be likened in the scripture to the greater Moses. Hebrews talks about he's the greater Joshua, he's the greater high priest, he is the greater Solomon even as he gives peace and he's the greater temple, the greater shepherd, he's the greater sacrifice and blood sacrifice and he is the greater atonement. He will be the great high priest of our confession. 
He will be, as Revelation says, the king of kings and lord of lords. He will be a prophet that isn't welcome in his hometown. He will be the prophet that Moses spoke about in the Torah that that would come after him and deliver his people once and for all. He will be this prophet, priest, and king. This is Jesus. So what I want us to do is look, as we kind of look at each one of these designations of the offices that Jesus holds, which is prophet, priest, and king, we can look at prophet first. And that verse we started with in Mark chapter one, verse 11 through 15, what do we see Jesus doing that he does throughout his ministry, but in particular as he takes up the mantle that John the Baptist has been doing. John has been preaching this message of repentance, preaching a message of God, being the mouthpiece of God as the final prophet, And as this prophet is preaching, Jesus, John is arrested, and then in Mark 1, verse 14 and 15, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus preaches this prophetic message of turning to God. Ultimately, as he preaches this good news of salvation, the good news of his own advent and arrival, Jesus himself becomes not only a mouthpiece of God and the word himself, for he is the word of God that has been made flesh, the logos in the flesh, and he now dwells among the people. It's in this amazing, mysterious union of God preaching these truths through Jesus, and yet God, through Jesus, embodying the very word that he is. For he is the word made flesh. This is the main message that Jesus preaches. This word has come to you and bringing to you the kingdom of God, which is this amazing uh, concept of God's rule and God's reign has come nigh to this place where Jesus walks, where Jesus is, the very presence of God dwells and his rule and reign exists God as Emmanuel, God with us, God within the tabernacle, God dwelt with them, God in the temple, God dwelt with them in the temple. Now, Jesus says, I am the new temple, the greater temple, for I will tear down the temple, and the Pharisees got ticked at him for saying that. And then he said, but I will rebuild it in three days. And they said, are you crazy? Are you nuts? You can't rebuild that temple in three days. And he says, watch me. (laughs) I will rebuild that temple in three days. For now, as he says to the Samaritan at the woman at the well, he says that now you will not go to Jerusalem or Samaria to worship, but you will worship in spirit and in truth. So wherever my name is proclaimed, there you may worship. This is the kingdom. This is the new temple The kingdom that is preached every time darkness is expelled and light floods in. The kingdom exists in every time we surrender our lives to the majesty and the rule and reign of God over our lives, God's kingdom is presented and God's kingdom is established. Every time our spheres of life operate under the rule and reign of Jesus as king, we know that the kingdom has come. And there is this, yes, kingdom that has come, it is inaugurated, and yet it is not yet complete. One day we await the final consummation of this kingdom where there will be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more death, that the king will return. And so it isn't always so much establishing his kingdom, but it is that the kingdom has been inaugurated and now we have a response to walk and join and stand and honor and surrender Jesus as king in our lives. This is what it means to be part of the kingdom of God and view him as a prophet who preaches this message and he preaches it to you today. Won't you be in my kingdom? Will you be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? This is the the message that Jesus preaches over and he preached it with his life and with his words and with his very being and his death on the cross. They put a crown of thorns. Oh, hail king of the Jews, they said. And yet he was exactly that and so much more king of the world. Through the Jews would be delivered this one who would die and then rise from the grave and give eternal life to all who would call upon his name. It's a beautiful message, the kingdom of God is here. And the second designation that Jesus is our prophet, he, he is the perfect priest, right? He is a perfect priest. Now this one always hits me hard because there is so much depth here. In the Old Testament, a priest carried such a status in the Old Testament that it was literally the very intermediary presence for on behalf of the sins of the people was mediated by a priest. And Jesus comes and abolishes so many of this and not so sense, that's the wrong wording, I guess you could say. He fulfills so much of what the Old Testament did in his one time, once for all sacrifice as our eternal high priest. 
There's something that has just helped me understand this, and I want you to turn to Hebrews 9. Uh, again, you can turn to Hebrews 9 with me or look at Hebrews 7 too, probably briefly here. And then we'll be flying through some other passages here at the end, but in Hebrews. Hebrews 9 gives us a, an understanding as we look at In Hebrews 7, it speaks of Melchizedek. In Hebrews 9, it speaks about the redemption that we have through the blood of Jesus, through the blood of Christ, the Messiah. And so Hebrews 9, verse 11 says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. So Christ appeared as our high priest. Right there, very clear. Jesus is our high priest. Then through the greater and more perfect tent or tabernacle not made with hands, that is of this creation, he, Jesus, the high priest, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats, calves, lambs, but by means of his own blood, thus securing a temporary redemption, (laughs) no, 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 an an eternal redemption, redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, verse 14, how much more, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish, that is, in holiness and perfection, to God, Purify now our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now there is a lot there, but basically we get this sense. Jesus as our high priest mediating on our behalf to be our representation for between us and God. And it is that he makes sacrifice. And what is the sacrifice? For it is not of a blood or uh, uh, the blood of goats and lambs and heifers, but rather of himself, his own blood the eternal blood of an eternal sacrifice. First John talks about this, how the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. It, it says also that this is a permanent once for all sacrifice. It, it mentioned that here, that once for all into the holy places, he secures an eternal redemption. So if you're in Hebrews, you can turn over to Hebrews chapter seven, and you can look at Hebrews seven, verses 22 through 28, where we grasp a little bit more and a little more depth that this is a sacrifice, this is a blood atonement that is made on behalf of our transgressions against God that is now made white as snow, but how is this? Well, this is an eternal forever, not again and again, but a once and for all thing. Look at Hebrews 7, verse 22. It says, this makes Jesus after already having spoken about Melchizedek. And if you forget who Melchizedek is, go back to our sermon on Abraham and Israel. You can go back to then uh, in our season and learn more about that. But in Hebrews 7, it speaks how Melchizedek is this eternal priest and Jesus is now operating in this way, uh, this role of eternal priesthood. And so this idea, he says in verse 22, this makes Jesus, this makes Jesus the guarantor, right? the guarantee of a better covenant. Remember the new covenant that was spoken about in Jeremiah 29. This new covenant that would come. What is this? Well, this is an eternal covenant. Look at it. Verse 23. The former priests, you know, the ones in the Old Testament, were were many in number. I mean, you you couldn't list all of them. The thousands of years of all the high priests on the tribe of Levi, all of them. Verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, meaning they were mortal and they died, right? But verse 24, but he holds, Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save even to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is an eternal intermediary, an eternal mediator, an eternal sacrifice. Uh, Vang and Carter say it this way that he's, they say we have sinned against an infinite God. So either a finite person may pay for our sins for an infinite amount of time or an infinite person must pay for our sins one time, once for all. Did you catch that? He's, this, we have sinned against an infinite God so either a finite person has to pay for our sins for an infinite amount of time or an infinite person and Jesus Christ pays for our sins one time once for 
Oh, Jesus makes this payment. He, 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 he writes the check, and the check clears, right? He, once for all, for all time, and all time sacrifice. And now he is alive. Did you know that? Jesus is alive, and he's not dead. So that means because he's alive, he can be at the right hand of the throne of God, making intercession for you and for me right now because he's alive. He's not dead. We don't have to keep making sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, shedding blood after blood after blood. No, the blood of Jesus Christ has been shed once for all. Therefore, that mediator that exists between God and man, who is that? The scripture says the man is Christ Jesus. You could say an infinite curse necessitates an infinite substitute. An infinite curse necessitates an infinite substitute. That reminds us in Hebrews 4, a verse I just read recently a week ago, we're saying it, Hebrews 4, verse 14, since we have a great high priest, we do, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. This is the high priest that we receive help from. This is that Jesus gave himself for you and for me. It says in Acts 20, 28 that Jesus gave himself for the church. The church in which the elders are responsible for protecting the church, guarding the church, being a shepherd over the flock of God. You know why? Just because we like that? No, because Jesus has purchased the church with his own blood. It says in Acts 20, 28, with his own blood. He made atonement, an eternal message of atonement, an eternal sacrifice, an eternal high priest. Jesus comes in and he, he, he proclaims this message of prophet and of priest every time he comes and he casts out demons and he heals people. He declares the kingdom of God is at hand and he declares now you are pure before God, righteous in a physical state, but righteous more importantly for get up, take your bed up, but your, let your sins be forgiven. This is this message of the prophet and the priest coming together in conjunction, but we have one more. We have this final uh, office that Jesus holds and this is the office of a king. Maybe this one is maybe most easy for us to recognize the sense that Jesus is king. He is over all. And Palm Sunday we we, we celebrate Jesus coming in as a king on a donkey, riding in and he is king. Hosanna, Hosanna they say. The savior, the king is here. But he rules in such a way as to, to, to declare that this king is a different kind of a king. But a king nonetheless. He rules and has dominion. He declares victory over the grave that sin may no longer rule and reign over the people of God. His kingship demands worship of that king and honor to the king. He carries with him an authority only worthy of God himself. And with the glory and the majesty there comes from this king power to proclaim the grave and sin as powerless over his citizens of his kingdom. Ligonier uh, Ministries and Anthony Carter writes this concept of this, the prototype of this king comes beforehand, the one we've already seen, the one we've already studied, the one we've already looked at. The prototype of this final king is King David, a man after God's own heart. David produces in his kingdom unrivaled peace that had not been celebrated until that point, or the unrivaled unity in his kingdom. Jesus, though, in its fullest extent, finally gives us the sense of effectual peace and ultimate unity, for he is the king of kings from the house of David and the tribe of Judah. And in Revelation 1.5, it reminds us that Jesus is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of all kings on earth. In Revelation 19.16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written king of kings and lord of lords. This is Jesus. He fought, he conquered, He rules the kingdom now, and his name is chief. His name is Lord of Lords. He is proclaimed as such. For the cross, as one writer says, the cross is Christ's pulpit. He preaches and he prophesies his kingdom over the world. The cross and the resurrection on Easter Sunday finally declares the victory over the kings of all this world. 
for he is the king of kings, ushering a victory and ushering in peace and unity as he is the king, like David and Joshua of sorts, we now enter into a rest, a final rest that only Jesus provides, that only everyone else was leading to and longing for. We have now been found in the name of Jesus so many aspects of eternal redemption. Jesus also uh, says of himself, in, in the book of John, really the entire book of John is organized around the very words that Jesus is declaring to you, the very messages that Jesus says. Jesus says, I am. Or Jesus himself, not just from others saying that he is prophet, priest, and king, but Jesus himself says, I am the bread of life, John 6. I am the light of the world, John 8. I am the door whereby you may enter safety, peace, and rest, or you may leave, John 10. Uh, I am the good shepherd, John 10. I am the resurrection and the life, John 14. I am the true vine, abide in me and you will live, right? This abide in the true vine. And then Jesus says in John 8 in a very stark and overt way, he says, before Abraham was, I am. (laughs) Before Abraham and David and, uh, and before Solomon and before Moses and before all of them, Jesus says, I am. God reveals himself to Moses and says, I am that I am. I exist. I am. All other things are other than me. And yet I want you to be part of this family. I want you to be part of this kingdom. I am sending my son, Jesus, who is the anointed Messiah to save the world and to reconcile the world back to myself. Messiah is the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, the perfect king, he is our savior. We now walk as a people who are alive because of Jesus, because of our faith in him, because of the cross and because of the grave, and because of his atoning priestly sacrifice, because of his preaching of the kingdom of God, the kingly authority declaring the world as his footstool, raising a banner of a victorious king who defeats the devil, hell, and death. Death, where is your sting, we can say. King Jesus is alive. It's this Messiah. His name is Jesus. Because of Jesus, we find ourselves today as a people of God who, who if we are willing to put our trust and put our faith in him, we can truly say that we are forgiven. We, We are reconciled. We are redeemed, we are atoned, we we are adopted, and we are saved. For Jesus says the Lord, Yahweh, God, the Messiah is salvation. And so what I want us to do as I close, I just wanna, like I said earlier, I wanna kinda bathe you in scripture today a little bit. I, I was trying to figure out different ways to summarize all of these things today. And I often find the best way to do that is by letting the Spirit of God speak to you today through these messages of the clear designation of Jesus Christ as the Messiah and the Anointed One and the Savior of the world. And the true difference that he makes, the true accomplishing work that he accomplishes on the cross and through his resurrection for you even today. That it isn't just a story that we talk about, but it's a real living, breathing person the person of Jesus Christ, both 100% God, 100% man, this mysterious union, yet for us, we are now forgiven. We are reconciled, we are redeemed, all of these things. So the first is this concept of forgiven. Colossians 2 verse 13 says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside. He took that debt and nailed it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing, you could say, as a king over them. And Colossians again also says in Colossians 1.14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That is, we are forgiven. The Bible says we are reconciled. And I want to turn to Romans 5.11. Uh, five, uh, Romans chapter five, verse one. I've already referenced it kind of briefly today, but Romans chapter five, it says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Imagine that. We have peace with God, shalom, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have obtained access by faith 
into this grace in which we stand now today. And we rejoice in hope. We rejoice in hope in the glory of God. Not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And for one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now what does that do for us when Christ dies for us? What effectual work does that do for us? Well, verse nine, since therefore we now have been justified by his blood, we are made righteous, pure, and whole before God. Much more, now we will be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Wow. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. There's a lot of sermons in that one, so we're gonna keep moving on. Ephesians 2, verse 12. Remember that you who were at one time separated from Christ, do you remember that? You were separated from Christ. You were actually called an alien, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, yep, no hope. You were without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, this climactic moment, you who were once afar off have been brought near to the blood of Christ, by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down the flesh and the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and the commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace that he might reconcile, that is to bring into right relationship again, us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. What a passage that is. And the next one is he, we are now redeemed. Romans 3, a verse you're very well familiar with, no doubt. Romans 3, 23, for we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Yep, we have. But we are now justified by his grace as a gift. Through what? The redemption that is in Christ, the Messiah, Jesus, the Lord of salvation. Ephesians 1, 7. In him we have redemption through what? His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Galatians 3, 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And in Galatians 4, 5 continues the line of thinking, to redeem those who are under the law so that we, now redeemed, might be made adopted as sons and daughters. Then we, because of all of this, we find ourselves in a place that we were sinners, but now we're saved. 1 Timothy 1, 15, the saying is trustworthy, believe me, trust me, I can tell you, and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. Ephesians 2 verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Titus 3 verse 4 says, but when the goodness and the loving kindness of our God appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Nothing I did, but because he's merciful. By what? The washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. John 3, verse 16. (laughs) For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish. They would have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that through him the world would be saved. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The entire story of the Bible leads us to the Messiah. The the entire gospel of John, I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the resurrection 
and the life. The way he compiles all of this leads us to Jesus as the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. That Jesus is the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, and the perfect king. And all you have to do is call upon his name and you will be saved too. It's the most incredible message as it's nothing that we have done but by his mercy. For John, the Gospel of John gives us a wonderful summary at the very end. This summary always blows my mind in its simplicity and yet its vastness and I think is helpful for us as we conclude this season two message one on Messiah, this climactic moment. It says in John chapter 20, the very end of John. He says, now Jesus did many other signs and the presence of his disciples and all of these things which are not written in this book because the entire world couldn't hold hold enough books to hold that. But he says, but these are written in, in John's gospel about Jesus. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And I pray that for you today. And if you don't know that you have life, you, you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you, you cannot claim to understand him in this manner. I pray that today would be your day of salvation. That today you will come speak with one of me, one of the prayer team that will be down here in the front, one of the elders, a friend, someone here that can speak to you and and introduce you to my Jesus. I I want you to know him because it is the most incredible message. It is literally the climactic watershed moment that the entire story of history hinges upon. Jesus is the Messiah. He's your perfect priest, prophet, king. And by believing in him, you may have life in his name. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you. We, we need you today. We, we come before you today broken and yet rejoicing. For it's in our brokenness and in our humility that we find ourselves exalted in you. For it is in our weakness that your power is made strong. I pray, God, that you would allow us today to come into you in that way. That you would be our Messiah for we need saving. That you would be our atoning, perfect sacrifice for Lord we need we need our transgressions to be paid for we need this atonement and God we thank you for sending your son Jesus and Lord now sending the comforter the spirit of Jesus the Holy Spirit to be with us even in this moment that confirms these things as true within our hearts and emboldens us and empowers us to proclaim this truth to one another and Lord we We pray these things today, asking God that you would visit us from on high today in this manner, that each person hearing this would have their hearts and lives changed to be taken closer to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.